Before we started the Grove, Elise and I wanted to be prepared. I mean, you never really can be, but we wanted to be as prepared as possible. So we went to something called a church planters assessment, where a dozen seasoned church planters encouraged us and put us through the fire. It was painful and amazing, encouraging and humbling, and they dug into everything about us. Our personalities, ministry, relationship, our friendships, our emotional, spiritual, and even physical health. Inventories were done about us by our friends and coworkers ahead of time, and the assessors had those inventories in hand, and I always tried to peek, but they would never let me see what they said. And we learned a lot about ourselves. I learned from the feedback from my friends and coworkers that I wear my heart on my sleeve, but not in the good way. All of my thoughts and feelings, good and bad, all of them were painted on my face like a Rembrandt painting. Rembrandt, he was known for his ability to capture the innermost thoughts of his subjects through facial expressions. What they said to me is, I need to learn to control my face. And I thought just fixing my heart would probably just be better, which proved difficult. I went about trying to fix my heart and I failed over and over. So I adopted a new tactic. When I got frustrated, I just would smile. During staff meetings, the joke became, oh, David is smiling. He must be getting pissed off. So I want you to imagine if we all were in a Rembrandt painting. If we were bitter or sad or depressed, bags would form under our eyes. Our faces would sink in and distort. And if we were acting like cowards, our bodies would grow weak and frail and thin. But in moments when we loved well, when we felt joy and peace, our faces would glow. Our eyes would brighten. When we face difficulties with bravery and inner strength, then our muscles would grow plump and our bodies would become like Olympic athletes. Our verses today show one day we will all become what our hearts already are. One day we will either become so beautiful and glorious that your friends, if they saw you now as you one day will be, They would be tempted now to bow in reverence to a beauty that is of another world. Or one day we will become so hideous that all others could do is pity us. And in some small way, we are moving towards one or the other right now. The painting has begun. We're in week three of this four-week series called Tell Your Story. And we're doing something different than normal. I'm giving you some homework. Over these four weeks, you are going to write four short memoirs. A memoir isn't the full story of your life. It's your story through a specific lens. Psalm 107 gives you four different memoirs of how God rescued you and then says, tell your story. Because it's a story worth telling the world. The world, in fact, needs your story. And your memoir today is called A Love That Healed My Heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and sick. Who can understand it? There is something wrong with us. 
We are wounded and in pain, but we don't really understand what's wrong. We are running in the wrong direction, digging ourselves into a pit. We need the healing hands of the good physician to lift us out and heal us. Now, if you aren't a Christian, you can still write this memoir. And after you write it, the question simply is, do you want to step into that story and have your heart finally healed? Psalm 107, verses 17 through 22, and also verses 1 through 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Whoever is wise, verse 43, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, before I open your chest to diagnose your heart, Look at verse two. It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And in the NIV translation, it says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. This is your memoir. Then look also at verse 17. It says, it starts with some, the word some, which is the word that starts each new memoir. We see that word, the word some in verse four, 10, 23, and in 17. Now, let me tell you, in the Hebrew, this word does not appear. The translators are doing something for us. They're telling us here is where each memoir begins, but it's misleading because it makes you think that each Christian has one of these four memoirs, but in reality, every Christian will experience these four memoirs in their life. Chapter one of your memoir, your peril, heart sickness, Verse 20 is the main idea. The heart needs healing. Your heart has eaten of the wrong fruit and its roots now are in rotten soil and it's making you sick. Heart sickness, it affects every single area of your life. The people in our verses, they have affliction, peril, pain, destruction, thin and almost lifeless bodies and they have this loss of appetite and they are now standing at the tall gates of death that they have led themselves to. And all these realities are a result of heart sickness. Sometimes in the Bible, injustice is punished by God and the cure is grace. But in this memoir, our own hearts have led us into the peril. Our hearts have dug ourselves up into a pit. God doesn't need to discipline us. We have just done it ourselves. We have followed the road that leads to the gates of death. Now, why would they do something? Why would they do something? Why would we do something so foolish? 
Why would we see these tall gates of death and continue to walk right towards them? How did this happen to us? The answer is that long ago, so long it feels like a legend, humanity walked in the garden of God. And there was the tree of life that kept our hearts alive and pure and good and beautiful and whole. And it gave us everlasting life. But one day, as we walked towards the tree of life, we found another tree and we lusted for its fruit. We held the fruit in our hands and frantic with desire, we sunk our teeth in. In that fruit was a virus that gave us a heart sickness that has been passed down from generation to generation all the way to us today. This tragedy that we are enduring started such a distant long time ago that we don't even realize that we're sick. It's just a new normal. Death has become accepted. Sorrow has become part of life. Wounds are just simply given band-aids. It wasn't always this way though. So don't accept it. God won't. You are made for the goodness and beauty and wonder of Eden. Don't settle for a life of sickness unto death. Your anxiety and depression are proof that your heart is sick. Your lack of joy and peace, your lack of strength in difficult times is proof. Your lack of love shows something has gone wrong. Not being present with your kids, your pride when you're fighting with your spouse, or you're allowing your spouse to win every argument even when they are wrong. This is a lack of courage. Or your over-desire for comfort, approval, control, at the sacrifice of goodness. These are only the beginning heartbeats of a sick heart. Only the beginning. Heart sickness in time leads to actual, listen, it's crazy. It leads to actual sickness of the mind and body. How? Because heart sickness distorts the mind, which in turn gives you anxiety, which takes its toll then on your body. And in the end, eventually death itself swallows you. So does that mean any affliction that you endure is because of your sick heart? No, but it could be, or it could be the result of being in a fallen world. So how do you know the difference? I don't think you do, but it doesn't matter because what you should do about it is the same. You cry to God for healing or for the strengthening of your heart or for both. This is chapter two of your memoir, your cry for healing. Crying to God turns you to God. This is called repentance. Repentance is not just turning from sin. It's also turning towards the God who offers you joy, peace, love, strength, courage, no matter the circumstance. If the fallen world brings you affliction, you need strength and peace from God, so you turn to him. If your sinful heart is causing you affliction, you need forgiveness and change. So you turn to him and he will lift you up out of it all. No matter the difficulty, you need God, so cry out to him. 
And when you do, something happens. God answers. Chapter three, God's rescuing love, a new heart. Other places in the Bible says our hearts are dead. The Bible also says we have these hearts of stone that are unhealable, impenetrable, and irredeemable, closed off to God's healing love. And we're also called stiff-necked people, unturnable like iron towers. So like a good chiropractor, God cracks our neck with something called irresistible grace. And he loosens our pride. And when we turn to him, our great physician, he then opens our chest and gives us brand new hearts. Verse 20 says, he sent out his word and healed us. In Hebrews, we're told that God's word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it comes in and it cuts out the sickness. God's word cuts into your chest to heal you. It convicts you to break you. God takes your cracks. He takes your wounds. He takes your brokenness, and he makes them the path to get his word into you, to heal you, and make you strong. I want to encourage you not to read your Bible, but to read it with faith. Start opening the Bible expectant, like something's going to happen to you. The sickness is about to be cut out of you, and you will become more of your heavenly self. Do you know why God's word pierces, cuts, and heals? Because the word is a person. A person fierce and sharp in love and determined to make you holy. The Gospel of John calls Jesus the Word made flesh. Jesus is the physician that came in with a healing sword. And if you read the Bible, if you read it and it doesn't bring you to Christ with a healing sword, you haven't read it the right way. And you know, it's a little bit terrifying, I suppose, when you read the Bible. If you think about God carrying around the sword, his word, and when you open it up, it's like his sword is lifted against you, but it's going to cut you to heal you. I mean, it's pretty terrifying. No wonder why we run from reading the Bible. Because it is a bit painful. It does hurt a bit, but it's the healing kind of hurt. But even after this operation, we keep going back to these old habits. This is chapter four, God's leading love, a growing heart. His word, it gives you not only a new heart, but his word is actually cutting out everything in you that's left over from the sickness. It's pulling it out. And it all takes time. It's a path. It's a journey. And last week, in the memoir, we found ourselves imprisoned to the dark dungeon of death and affliction. And then Christ came and it was this banging on the prison gates and he shatters open the bronze gates of our prison and rips open the iron bars and he broke our chains, lifted us from darkness and carried us out into freedom. That means the Christian is now free, free from guilt, shame and death in the green meadow of life, and the mount of glory is ahead. 
And we have a journey to take. We're in freedom, but not yet home. And your feet yet don't know how to stand in freedom. So we need our physician now to become our guide. And that's what he does. But sometimes, you know, we find it easier to go back to old ways. Back to prison. There are stories of people delivered from the slums of India. But they don't know how to live in this new freedom. So they go running back to the slums. There are stories of men who've spent almost their whole life in prison. They get out and the wide world is before them and it causes them way too much anxiety. So they commit a a crime just so they can go back to the prison where they felt safer, ironically. Our hearts, while they are new, are used to prison. So we go back to the ways of the world. We need his word to be our guide home to glory. Our new freedom, you know what it is? It's also a battlefield of temptation. So prison does feel strangely safe because our aim in the kingdom of God is to become like Christ and to press on towards the mountain. And we've got to fight through a battle to get there and we need strength to do that. Where do we get the strength? Well, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, So we all, with unveiled face, are beholding the glory of the Lord as we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. You could think of it like this. We are like living, breathing mirrors. What defines a mirror? Whatever's in front of it. So if you want to become more like Christ... You've got to see his glory. Now, how do, you, how do you see his glory? It's everywhere. Everywhere to be seen by faith. It's in the people around you right now. The person next to you is made in the image of God. And so if you think about it like this, we're living, breathing mirrors. And my job right now is to look up at the glory of God. And if I'm seeing the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ shining down upon me as a mirror, I'm then reflecting it to you. And if you're looking at me and that glory is shining upon you, you're, you're reflecting it back to me. And then I reflect it back to you. And the glory of God is ping-ponging off of all of us. This is what the church is. This is what the community of saints are supposed to do. This is a city on a hill reflecting the glory of God out to the world around us. That is what we are supposed to be. And you see his glory in nature. It's the painting, the artistry of our creator, proof that he is who he is. And it's in his word. And then after all of that I just said, if you are still wondering how you see his glory, I don't think I can tell you anymore. You have to take the risky road of faith. And when you do, If you're now a Christian and then you're like, well, how do I grow? Well, I take this risky road of faith. I have to press on further and grow in my faith. As you do, you get another vision of his glory. And then another stroke of beauty is painted upon you. Another weaving of strength is cut into you. Let me explain this another way. When God created Eden, it was called good. Not perfect, but good. The Hebrew word is tov. 
Tov means it has the potential to reach its end goal, its telos, its perfection. And reaching the end goal in Eden is up to humanity. It was up to us to continue to eat of the tree of life. But we stopped short. We feasted on the fruit that made us sick. And then all we could do was sin. But now Christ has given us a new heart, equipped for the battle. In one sense, yes, we have it much worse than Adam and Eve because they were in Eden before they sinned. But in another sense, we have it better. We have it better even before they sinned. And here is why. Because we have a guarantee from God that we will reach Eden. It was always in jeopardy for Adam and Eve. It is never in jeopardy for us anymore. We have a guarantee that Eden is ours. And when we finally enter in, we will see Christ as he is in all of his glory, and we will become like him, unable to sin. So in that sense, we have it better because we were guaranteed something they weren't. But we were on a more difficult battlefield than they were. Every day is a battle to walk by the tree of temptation towards the tree of life. Christ is the tree of life. And the only way to pass by the tree of temptation and death is to see Christ in his glory. The blazing glory of the golden tree at the top of the mountain. He is the better tree with the pure fruit of life. And he is the root. The root that doesn't only produce fruit for you to feast on, but he... So he's not just the root that's producing fruit in the branches of the tree, but he is the root that when you join yourself to him, he produces fruit in you. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Like, there's a bad tree. Be self-controlled. Follow towards the good tree. John 15 actually says, you can bear no fruit apart from him and do nothing good. Now, how can Jesus make such an arrogant claim? Well, you know what he's getting at? He's getting at what's tov. You could do nothing that leads to everlasting life without him. You can do nothing that's eternal without him. You can do nothing that's real life, complete life, the way it's meant to be without him. And so here's what that means. In your marriage... There's going to be plenty of trees of death and temptation to pass by. And together in your marriage, you walk to the tree of life. You sit down underneath its branches. Together with your spouse, you make Christ the blazing tree of glory at the center. With your kids, long day at work. Here's the temptation. I just want to escape. I just got to rest. And so you pass by these little beautiful things. Like, come play. Oh, no. I've got to rest. And I get it. But it's the tree of death. Because they need you. So go. And, you know, don't just go to them. Go 
with them to Christ, the tree of glory. Your job as a parent is not to make your kids into good athletes. It is not to make them into good students. Your job is to help them in the art of passing by every tree of death so they might sit underneath the tree of glory and be satisfied. In your workplace, trees of death. In your life, in school, there are trees of death, trees of temptation. Pass them by. Bring Christ, the tree of glory, everywhere you go with you. And you're going to find yourself changing into something quite different. And the beauty of him is that if you don't get to him, and he's already put his mark on you, he becomes a walking tree. He comes to get you. In fact, this amazing thing throughout the Old Testament, Eden becomes mobile. Eden, it's like Eden is chasing us down. It's like, hey, we need to get back to Eden, and we keep going in the wrong direction, and Eden's like, all right, I'm coming for you. And in Eden, is this where God is most present? So that means God's chasing you down. He's the walking tree. So how do you, I mean, how do you respond to this? Chapter 5 of your memoir, with thanks and praise. Now, thanks. It says, let, let those thank the Lord for his steadfast love and wondrous works to the children of man. And then it talks about the this, this sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, Christians, I think we should be more thankful than we are. I think we don't really get the gift that's been given to us often enough. I think we become bitter. How can we be bitter about this? I mean, I know life's hard. I'm not saying that it's not. But you have something that's even more glorious than the difficulties of life that overwhelm us and lead us into a life of thanksgiving. And so if your life, if like people wouldn't say about you, oh, that's a thankful person. Not that they wouldn't say that you're not thankful, but if they wouldn't ca- categorize you as thankful, I think you've lost sight of the kind of story you're in. And then it says, this memoir is a little bit different. So instead of telling your story, it says to write a song and sing it. Now, I've heard some of you sing. Songwriting's pretty hard. But the point of it, I think, is more... Let the telling of your story be like a song of joy. So then we ask, would people categorize you as someone who is joyful? Like for real. Not just they wouldn't say that that person's not joyful, but they would say they somehow have found joy that rises up in the midst of difficulties, sorrows, pain, and trials. It's actually a command from God for you to be joyful during trials. And the reason it's a command is because God has given you the capacity for joy no matter what you're going through by faith. And so the challenge is, okay, if I can do that because God has given me something for that, then why is it not happening? And the challenge has been issued Find your joy in him. 
if you are not a joyful person, then you have forgotten the kind of story that you're in. And the story that God has written you into is a story that is worth telling. And do you know the primary thrust of why God wants you to tell this story? Because the world has a heart sickness, and its remedy is your story. And I am not playing around with that. I'm telling you this for real, because within your story is the good news of the gospel. If you're a Christian, the good news is part of your story. So just by telling your story, you're telling people the good news that will rescue them and give them a brand new heart, a brand new freedom, and a brand new world. It's all there. Your story is the cure. And you have a God who saw you in the pit that you dug yourself into, in rotten soil. But he doesn't say they're getting what they deserve. He comes. And he reaches his hand down to you in Christ to pull you up out of that pit. And when you do, you knock his hand away. When he does, you knock his hand away. That's what sin is. It's every time you sin, it's the knocking away of the good and gracious hand of God. But do you know what he does in response? He doesn't walk away. He jumps into the pit of death that you have dug yourself into. He jumps into your grave. And there, as the seed of life, he begins taking root in the soil. And now the soil is changing. It's becoming healthy. And then he starts digging his roots into your heart. And then he rises from the grave. And when he does, that is how you have a brand new heart. That is how your heart is cleansed. That is how you're made new. That is how you're made whole. Because something from outside of this world, something of heaven, something glorious and beautiful, something that is called God has come into the grave to come and get you and give you life. He's the living hope within. So let him dig into you. Dig into your heart. And then the painting of your life will look like the painting of the glorious face of your Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have, you have called us to you. But we didn't answer, so you came for us. You told us of our home, our birthplace. You rescued us from the prison. You put us out in freedom. And now you have put within us everything that we need for the journey. God, I pray you would give us new hearts, pure hearts, that you would wash us white as snow. And in doing that, we wouldn't just feel forgiven, but we would feel alive with joy and peace and strength, newness of life. 
God, teach us to be people who tell their story. Make us bold in doing it. Not in a weird way, but in a beautiful way. So we might win people over to the cause of Christ, you. And so that the heart sickness might be lifted. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at Grove Church PSL, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.